0: What's up, everybody? This is FTW with Ahmad Khan. I'm your host, Ahmad Khan, and joining me today on this pending internal investigation edition is Oscar Gonzalez of CNET. Hey, what's up? And later on, we'll be joined by Will Parton of Data & Society. On this week's show, we'll be talking about Sony's PlayStation 5 reveal event and the Riot Games executive who shared an insensitive photo about George Floyd. And of course, idle chit-chat towards the end. Now, Oscar, you saw the PS5 reveal. Let's talk about the system itself. What do you think of the design?
1: This is one of those times when Sony tried a bit too hard, and uh, I'm not feeling it. Design itself, it's just a bit much, and I could tell a lot of people were not feeling it as well via social media and different kind of chats. It doesn't look great, I'll put it simply,
0: at least in my eyes. Yeah, one thing I do appreciate about the design is the fact that you can see that they kind of built the chassis around the components for example you know how it kind of angles in Uh, the reason it angles in because there isn't like a cd drive there right it's all just components or that you can see the vents or the fans kind of like curving around the white frame i do think that they Instead of building the frame first and putting the components inside of it, they kind of went inside out, which I guess in that sense, that's why it can look a bit more organic than, let's say, the Xbox Series X, which is literally just like a, like a giant cube, right? You know, they were just trying to compact as much components in like a small leader capacity as possible and then put a case around it. With that, I mean, are there any games that stood out to you? Well, obviously the, the big one, at least to me,
1: was Resident Evil 8. It was talked about, it was hinted at, and it officially is uh, shown at Sony's, uh, the big PlayStation 5 reveal. That was the big one, at least to me. Uh, second would be Demon Souls remake. Again, another, another game that was hinted at. It looks like they are probably adding some cut content, which is a very big deal to all the Souls fans and uh you know those were the two big ones we there was actually rumblings that um you know the couple the big reveals we, we kind of already knew what where the big reveals were going to be
0: yeah you know i'm trying to think the i think the game that kind of stuck out for me was uh returnal by uh gosh what was the name of the studio again but either way it's it's housemark i believe is a studio which is an australian studio and they I, I haven't seen them like make a game of this caliber ever and it's i think the idea of groundhog day but set in space or like on a different planet is a really interesting idea but one thing i did notice about the ps5 reveal is that you didn't see the types of typical games that you would see at console reveal events right like not any crazy shooters it was a lot of very uh, conceptual games um, games that have maybe broader appeal that have not just you know shaved dude with gun if, if that makes sense
1: uh, well, you're saying no Call of Duty, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, you're right. You, you are right about that. Although, it's expected. And I'm sure they, Sony made a deal. Or I'm sure Activision was just like, hey, guys, we're going to do it on our own. Aside from the lack of a big shooter, I don't know. It feels it feels about right. There were the big games, uh, the, the new releases. And then there were a lot of, you know, what would be considered more indie games, brand new IPs. They're tucked in the middle. Uh, There was sort of a little family segment as well. And then again, goes back to some of the bigger games. So, it did feel like a bit more of Sony's traditional E3 press conferences, if you will. Uh, With the exception that there was just no no big time shooters and only one sports game, but I guess that's kind of dealing with the how the publishers are well dealing with sports games right now it's a little bit all over the place
0: you know but uh, the i guess the point of this podcast isn't really to focus on the video game industry in general you know i try to focus more on the esports side and while there wasn't you know there weren't any big esports announcements here i did want to talk to you about two potential areas and w- that could become strong areas for esports competition. First, we did see the sequel to Gran Turismo. So Gran Turismo 7 is coming, but I think Gran Turismo 7 is coming in a racing world that's become very competitive. It's become so competitive to the point, and I'm not just talking about competition with Forza on the Xbox side, but with Assetto Corsa, with um, Project Cars, with iRacing. There's a reason why NASCAR and Formula One and IndyCar are looking to games like iRacing for their simulation competition and not a Gran Turismo and not a Forza. And when speaking to pro drivers, it's because they say that racing simulations on PlayStation and Xbox just aren't realistic enough. Do you think that Sony... They, I know they have their own Gran Turismo eSports series, but other than just kind of being a thing that people compete in just for some extra money, do you think that Sony's actually taking iRacing and like a set of courts, like as real competition?
1: I don't think so. And... The reason is, you know, iRacing definitely took off, especially with this whole pandemic, and people were into it. The thing is, with Sony, they kind of they're kind of in the same boat as Nintendo in that they don't realize when they have something that could be very good for esports. They kind of realize it when it's too late, and I, I think you know when it comes to the Grand Turismo series, they're just not that sort of racing. Competitive racing spirit. The previous Gran Turismo games, there was an online component, but it never really became a big deal among racing fans. Forza is big on online. That's a very competitive online game. Uh, Gran Turismo never was. I don't think they wanted to. I think they just want to keep it to, hey, this looks pretty. And by the way, we have every car in existence.
0: Well, the other thing on the eSports end is that, you know, Sony is currently the sponsor of Call of Duty League, and I assume that Sony will continue to be the sponsor of Call of Duty League moving forward when the new Call of Duty comes out on PlayStation 5. Uh, at these events, we're going to see PlayStation 5s in front of every monitor, and I assume that we're going to see some PlayStation 5 controllers. Now, a lot of the players like to, you know, use their own custom controllers, but it seems that with the technology that Sony's bringing in with its haptic feedback, I don't know, could it give players that extra bit of information that they need when playing competitively that maybe a custom controller by controller chaos or whatever doesn't?
1: I don't think so right away with the next Call of Duty, which I'm I'm assuming it's going to be, well they said I believe the, the rumor is it's going to take place in the Cold War, so 70s or 80s I guess uh, the, uh, the subject I have there is the developers are not going to have enough time with the haptic feedback to really make it more interesting and more to convey data to the player as they will say two years down the line it's going to take time especially with new hardware and i do not see them i I don't see that's going to be a big thing yet especially with this brand new one maybe next year they'll figure out just a little bit more information that will make it a, a controller but i'm assuming that all the pros are going to stick with whatever controller they have and that should work fine with the PlayStation 5. I believe it is backwards compatible with controllers, or not get some sort of adapter to work with it, but I doubt they're going to want to use a newer controller, the newer controller, or something of the like, until there's a few years on the Call of Duties for PS5.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I am interested also in how the architecture of the PlayStation 5 itself, that internal memory architecture, and how fast it is, if that'll affect how competitive games are designed and played. But I guess we're just going to have to hold off onto that when uh, we get some more information. Thank you so much for jumping on, Oscar. Yeah, sure. Not a problem. And now I'm joined by Will Parton. He's a research analyst at Data & Society, a nonprofit that does research on the impacts of data-centric technologies. He's also a doctoral candidate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's working on a dissertation about the development of the esports industry. He also co-wrote a book with Ninja titled Get Good, My Ultimate Guide to Gaming. And while I would like to talk to Will about his research or the work he's done with Ninja, there are just some things that are completely taken over the news right now. Ron Johnson, global head of consumer products at Riot Games, the publisher behind League of Legends, shared an image on his Facebook page recently that essentially attacked the character of George Floyd. Floyd, for anyone not keeping up with the world but is still somehow listening to this podcast, uh, was the man who was killed by Minneapolis police, which led to the worldwide protests that we're seeing today. The picture is in a very familiar meme-style template with Impact font on the top and the bottom. It shows a picture of Floyd in the middle and claims the media would have you believe that Floyd was a martyr. Then it goes on to list all of his run-ins with the law. I think the thing that's so striking to me was just how tone-deaf it was, considering everything that's going on. How it casually dismissed his personal life. You know, he grew up in the Third Ward of Houston, which is a difficult place to grow up. Uh, His mom was known as, like, a central linchpin in the CUNY home, and she raised a lot of children. She was just kind of like this community uh, center figure. And, you know, he had a pretty successful high school career, but he He was well-known in his community. He had a stint with the law, and he did go to jail, but during the latter part of his life, it really seemed that he had reformed. The Post went on to say that, you know, when he was killed, he was high on meth, which medical examiners have claimed was not the cause of his death, and that any claim about his toxicology report is a red herring, when, you know, the real cause of his death was asphyxiation. Well I do think that the toxicology reports will be weaponized and used against protesters it's hard to ignore the way in which he died and the post by Johnson it suggested that if police hadn't stopped and hadn't killed him or strangled him to death that he possibly could have gone on and killed other people essentially you know it's like the Iraq war defense like if we don't invade Iraq now they're going to have weapons of mass destruction and you know cause world war 3 well, I really just want to ask you, when you saw this post, especially after all the criticism that's been lobbed towards right from Cecilia Danastasio's reporting that she did Kotaku, were you kind of just as floored as I was?
2: I was. And, you know, there's a couple of ways in which I was was really horrified by this. One is just, of course, the content of what he said. It, it's uh, I mean, it's gross and It, you know, any blaming someone who has been murdered by the police for their own death is about as low as it gets. But even setting aside sort of, you know, the moral question, the content of of what Johnson said, I was sort of mystified that, like, given, you know, the controversies that riot has been embroiled in in the past about who does their company serve, who does it marginalize? Like, what the fuck were you thinking, man? I, I was just sort of mystified of there's been so many cases of people saying things like this on, you know, you're a public figure, no matter, you know, whether you like it or not. It's sort of, you know, just mystifying to me that if you're in that position, that this is what you would choose to post. And that's, of course, it's, it's horrifying to have those beliefs in the first place. But this is sort of, you know, at a moment when everybody is sort of under heightened scrutiny for the kind of things you say and you profess to believe. Like, why, why do that? So it clearly shows an incredible lack of, of judgment, and especially for someone in a leadership position.
0: Yeah, you did mention that he was a public figure. I mean, do you mean like public figure in like the literal legal sense or just somebody who is very high up on the totem pole and probably should just be careful with what he says?
2: I think the latter. Um, you know, I this is not someone I knew too much about prior to this particular event, but you know the the fact of the matter is that if you're someone who is in a leadership role at you know a company as large as riot you are by de facto a public figure even if you're posting on your own facebook and that just sort of needs to be kind of the mentality that you're you're entering when you think about the choices of what am i going to post here what are people going to be able to screenshot and share so again like it's the moral horror is one thing the judgment, you know, call is another,
0: um, but both equally bad. I think the thing that's kind of striking to me is how, for the victims of social movements, they need to be these perfect heavenly characters, you know, Rosa Parks, for example, like, let's say if she had some kind of like past, maybe that would have been used against her to diminish, you know, what she did in those protests. But even then, like the ACLU, if you look through history, the ACLU had to essentially work to like find somebody because they had been doing bus protests for a while, but it was the Rosa Parks one that kind of stuck. And, you know, I think that's... (sighs) I think it's just so unfair to Floyd, right, or to anybody who's a victim of police brutality to only really give them any kind of benefit after their death, if and only if they've lived these perfect lives.
2: Right. And there's sort of two points coming out of that for me is, one, you shouldn't have to be this sort of ideal figure to not be murdered by the police. But a second point is that oftentimes those ideal figures are very careful sort of retroactive, you know, constructions. When we think about the life of a lot of civil rights activists, oftentimes any sort of, in particular in sort of what we think of as sort of the, the key era of the civil rights, the fifties and sixties, a lot of sort of the radical affiliations of these people have been carefully removed from the record. Um, when we think of, you know, the early life of someone like Nelson Mandela was involved in actually direct action, and this is not the way that sort of the legacy is carefully constructed to be this figure who is, you know, you know, this sort of icon of nonviolence, this perfect ideal. People's lives are, of course, much more complicated than that. But then, you know, often the work that's done after the fact sort of to try to you know do this like cultural healing and whatnot often really sort of eliminates things that in the moment were often the very things that were weaponized
0: against them. You know, I think it'll be very important moving forward, like if the legacy of George Floyd is not one of this, you know, perfect church going person who had you know this perfect life but that if we can accept that you know his life was difficult and complicated but that he was still a person that's deserving of you know not being strangled to death by law enforcement that that would then humanize so many other victims of police violence which so often get completely dismissed by people on whatever side you have just so that they can get their political point across yes
2: we're looking for any reason to dismiss them in some ways for any you know tr- any reason they can find to say, this life is not worth grieving, or this life was not worth living. But you know, all of that is sort of a, a smokescreen to try to take away from sort of the, the blatant existence and sort of the brutality of uh, the work that police do, because they are violence workers.
0: Expand upon that, because I think some people might be a little miffed by what you just said.
2: So I mean, it often, it's this way of trying to understand what actual function do the, the police serve in society. Uh, And certainly the police, if if we look at their origins, where they come from, it it comes from slave catching in the United States. And so this creates this, you know, very worrying continuity between sort of the origins of these institutions and their existence. And while what you hear when you're growing up is that the police are here to protect us and so forth, in practice, they're just enforcing these laws that are nominally neutral They impact everybody this is not actually how these institutions work and police are distinct among sort of different groups that we might imagine are are engaging in sort of the quote unquote public good or trying to protect that because they are sort of granted the ability to, you know, engage in violence. And that is sort of one of the things that makes them distinctive as an institution. And as sort of the years have gone on, there's a lot of reasons that the police have been militarized. There are sort of the ways that public institutions get financed. The, you know, ways that who becomes, you know, a police officer has changed quite a bit. And the kinds of gear that they are given and the mentality that is instilled through training has also changed quite a bit in the last 40 years. All of which has made sort of violence not just sort of the thing that is the most you know, distinctive capacity about what police do, but also how often that sort of gets posited as a solution to problems in a wide variety of spaces. Because the other thing about policing is that the kinds of tasks we've asked to police to take on now sort of go far beyond, you know, say, responding to violent crime. The police are expected to intervene in drug wars, mental health crises, and then all of a sudden you have an institution that is primarily about the use of violence to solve and react to all these problems that are not necessarily violence problems.
0: There are two key points. Like I, you know, I see that New Zealand after the Christchurch shootings last year, they started a pilot program in which they would have some armed police officers that would be able to deal with violent situations and be able to react very quickly. But now, it seems that they're kind of moving away from that pilot program, especially after the death of George Floyd, because they're worried that, you know, the indigenous population will then meet the hands of violence from police that have these kind of implicit biases. I don't know if the U.S. would have an appetite to disarm police officers or, like, or something like that, but I'm not entirely sure what, like, the proper solution is when you're dealing with areas of society that are becoming rapidly more violent, especially in a country that's just filled with guns. And, you know, police are trained to believe that you know they, they could be the next victim at any point in time. And it's a very us versus them mentality. So it just creates this weird police state complex.
2: Right. Oh, so, and so for me, in thinking about what are sort of solutions here, um, it's very rare that you're going to find someone who wants to say, we need more police violence. The problem is they often proffer solutions that may sort of end up there nonetheless. And this is you know, right now, very much in a public conversation is this distinction between police reform and police abolition. On the one hand, if you're a reformist, you say, well, you know, the police have some problems, but you know, this this institution is fundamentally a public good. So we need to identify the bad apples, find the biases, swap out the lethal technologies for illegal ones and then everything will be fine tomorrow. This is sort of nice in theory, but in practice this is not traditionally what police reform has done. I think a good example is, you know, New York just passed a law about banning chokeholds or rather specifically making them a felony. But that has has been banned as a practice for much of the last decade. It doesn't actually have that much of an impact when you're asking these institutions to police themselves. And this can, you know, you can apply that logic to to almost anything that falls under the general heading of reform, which usually is either a technology intervention or a training intervention, whereas the flip side, an abolitionist is going to say, unfortunately, because not every abolitionist necessarily believes that every single part of what policing needs to do or does right now has to go away, or you know, not necessarily every abolitionist is you know trying to get rid of laws. That's a, a often a disingenuous reading that people who want the police to go away somehow don't think. You know that they want the laws to go away too, but that would—that's not the same thing, of course. An abolitionist is sort of the interest here is thinking about all the things we have asked police to do right now that are maybe not jobs that people who are trained as violence workers are, you know, the best equipped to do. This includes responding to mental health crises. This includes things like uh, what we call the drug war, but is its own kind of crisis. And often that means defunding and diverting resources that are currently being given to the police to these alternative kinds of institutions that can then take on work that the current police are ill-equipped to do. Uh, and so that requires in many ways a fundamental reimagining of what we mean by public safety and who keeps us safe and i think what's striking to me is you know in my own community right i'm a community of, of researchers most people tend to be liberal or farther left than that but there's a lot of people who understand themselves primarily as data driven people who want to see the data see the results see what comes out and you know, so I think oftentimes, and this is sort of a great irony, is that a lot of the policy outcomes that people who are progressive want, these things actually exist um, with things that are under sort of the broader heading of abolition. There's not an enormous number of studies that are about abolition because abolition hasn't happened a lot. But what we do have studies about are about the very things that abolition is supposed to replace policing with in a lot of cases. It's very clear that you know creating needle exchanges for people you know, who are experiencing you know drug abuse that is a far more effective public health intervention than you know just trying to police these people out of existence or throw them in jail. That is not just I think morally responsible but it also happens to be fiscally responsible. So those are the kinds of things that sort of interest me in this moment, is there is this opportunity to point to other ways of arranging our society and and public safety that don't rely on institutions like the police that are maybe not going to get us where most people actually want to go, but haven't sort of seen the right kind of you know, uh, seem that framed
0: in the right way where they can sort of embrace mm. it. Well, swinging back to Riot Games, Riot did issue a statement to Vice saying that we'll say firmly that the sentiment in the image is abhorrent, against our values, and directly counter to our belief that addresses systematic racism and requires immediate social change. And Johnson currently on leave with Riot pending an investigation. What do you think Riot should do?
2: I'll sort of bite the bullet on this one, and I, he should lose his job. Um, I, again, and. Even if, you know, we're sort of, this is a big if, if we're sort of putting aside the moral component, the fact that this is a thing you have chosen to to make in public, a statement you have chosen to make in public on social media, when sort of your association with Riot Games is well known, it just reveals an astounding lack of judgment that, you know, is, I think, someone in a leadership position should know better. So while I think there is a moral case for firing him, there's also a practical one.
0: So, Will. When you're on Discord and chatting with your other research buddies, what are you chatting about?
2: Ooh, good question. So I am a bit of a 4X fanatic, 4X games, that is. And so I have been playing the new Season Pass for Civilization VI. Um, I've always loved the Civ games, and I sort of grew up exclusively with computers, so they were one of my main go-to. And sort of the new one here, I think they've done a really good job of adding sort of depth to this game and making every single civilization have a really distinct and interesting play style, which is something I think uh, Firaxis really struggled with in all of sort of the previous Sims games or uh, Civilization
0: games. Mm. You know, I've been following the report about Adam Rappaport, the former editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine, and I'm a big fan of the YouTube channel, and I do, you know, visit the website on occasion, and I was just kind of floored with the discrimination and the culture that was happening in such a almost fun, family-friendly, squeaky-clean publication. It was issues of where they would consistently put you know, they're white writers in front of the camera, they would continue to get famous and they would be be paid accordingly. While the men and women of color would often, they would often have to appear on camera, but would not be paid any extra for their appearances. It's this very kind of elitist, you know, magazine industry mentality that I've had to deal with in my career in which they're very dismissive on things that are different because they're worried that like their audience would react to it poorly or would just wouldn't care. So, you know, if a writer wanted to pitch something on, like, a Mexican dish, they would be like, oh, no, no, our writers wouldn't care, or our readers wouldn't care, or is there a way you can, like, you know, take that dish and, you know, make it into like, infuse it with like a lobster roll or whatever, you know, just really whitewash it for for that audience. And it really came... A, a lobster roll is the whitest food I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> and it really came to head when Sula uh, El Wali just pretty much said on Instagram that, you know, she is paid 50 grand a year to live in New York, you know, has not gotten a raise, has never been paid for her camera appearances. And somebody actually put together a compilation of all the times other writers have like, be- like said, Hey, we need your help. And she's like very capable and very smart in this compilation. It was like actually really saddening to see like how much they relied on her, but never actually compensated her. Or that even Adam Rapport's uh, assistant, who was a Stanford graduate, never saw a raise, was living on $35,000 a year and just had to like kind of deal with his BS. And I'm glad that media is finally seeing a reckoning. But with that, I think we should close at the show. Thank you so much for jumping on the show, Will. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. If you like the show, rate, subscribe, and share. Your support is helping our show grow and allowing us to bring on more guests. If you'd like to follow Oscar and his games writing at CNET, he can be found at OGreporter on Twitter. If you want to follow Will and all the things that he's been researching in esports, he can be found at William underscore Parton. If you want to follow my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, I can be found at Twitter at Imad. Annie Pei is our producer. Any questions about the show can be relayed to her at Pei underscore Annie on Twitter. And Ron Lyons is our researcher. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.